Ecclesiastes 7, if you would turn there for our study this morning. It was August 8th, 1914, and World War I had just broken out, and there was a, a ship called the Endurance that had just set sail from Plymouth, England, and it did so in attempt to make the first land crossing of the Antarctic continent. The captain of the ship, British explorer Ernest Shackleton, had amassed a a crew of men rough around the edges, as well as some sled dogs. And they reached the old whaling station in South Georgia, South Georgia Island, 2,500 miles from Antarctica on November 5th. They then departed in late spring for the Southern Hemisphere, December 5th, and by early January 1915, the ship reached the Weddell Sea near Antarctica, which is considered one of the most dangerous bodies of water in the world. But then it happened. Though it was summer in Antarctica, ice flows began enclosing around the ship to the point where it could no longer proceed. It was stuck in the ice. And so Shackleton ordered the men out of the ship onto the ice And with pickaxes, they began to hack away in front of the ship to break a path. Of course, it was futile. They were stuck. And this was a a day before modern shipping technology, before GPS, before radios. They then had to live in the ship with the hope that a path would clear The Antarctic winter having set in, June 1915, they didn't see the sun for months, and by September, they started to hear cracking sounds as they lived in the ship. And the ice flow, of course, the immense pressure was beginning to crush the ship, the Endurance. So Shackleton, he ordered his crew to carry all of their supplies out of the ship onto the ice where they lived, October 1915. The pressure of the ice was so great that it splintered the hull of the mighty endurance. And by October 27th, the crew and the dogs, the sled dogs, watched a horrifying sight as the ship was shattered into pieces and they watched it sink below the ice into the ocean below. It was minus 15 Fahrenheit. They were stranded on this ice flow near Antarctica. No radios, so they set up camp there, no land, And they called the camp, Camp Patience. You can read the rest of this harrowing account, how many of the men lived in the great book Endurance. These men were faced with impossible circumstances, a great dilemma. And you might not find yourselves stranded on an ice floe near Antarctica, But certainly in a Genesis 3 world, we find ourselves often, if you live long enough, often in situations where it becomes clear from from my eyes, this this, this circumstance, it seems impossible. It becomes soberingly, soberingly true to you, obvious that you're not in control. You can't change the circumstance. And we might question and, and ask ourselves, okay, It seems like it would be so much better if God would make a path forward here. I can't make a path forward here. But it seems like God would be glorified if he did. And and, and maybe it's a situation where you can't change someone's spiritual condition. You can't change someone's hostility or hardness of heart that is so perplexing and sorrowful to you. Maybe it's a, a physical, a health condition. You can't change Life is backwards and broken at times. It's very normal. What can make matters worse is you do right and you experience wrong, while those who do wrong seems to, seem to experience blessing. You might love a person and they return it with hate. You might pour in to a child, parent them in a godly way, and they go astray and reject it all and embrace evil. Why are things backwards at times? There are perplexities. 
Why does this happen? And of course, Job's counselors may try to give you trite, formulaic advice, and and we know it's not that simple. We don't have an explanation for everything. Life is backwards and broken often. And in this passage, in Ecclesiastes 7, the Word of God addresses this head on. And kind of in the, in the passage walks us, God will, our, our, our great God will walk us along the contours of life's backwardness and brokenness. So would that follow along as I read Ecclesiastes 7, I'll read verse 1 through 15. God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word reads, a good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. A little bit of context here and background about the book of Ecclesiastes. This book is given to us by God through the pen of King Solomon, the son of King David. Solomon, of course, also wrote Proverbs and Song of Solomon. This book is likely like a single message, maybe a written sermon given at the end of Solomon's life. We know that Solomon was not a perfect man. 1 Kings 3 tells us he was endowed with more wisdom and wealth than probably just about anyone. And yet, fast forward, 1 Kings 11, and we see that Solomon crashed and burned at times. However, I think we can say that the Lord picks him up and restores him, grants him repentance in the bottom of the ninth inning of his life to finish well. He comes to his senses by the grace of God and gives us this priceless book, the book of Ecclesiastes. So Solomon is writing, looking back, helping us under the inspiration of the Spirit to live well in a world that is not. This is wisdom literature, which seeks to give us skill to navigate by the word of God the perils of a depraved world that opposes us. Life between Genesis 3 and Revelation 20. Now, wisdom literature, it's a little different than a New Testament letter, for example, like the book of Philippians or Ephesians. There you have concrete instructions, a nice flow, sort of linear. But in Ecclesiastes, the book seems to meander a bit, but it's never off track. It kind of winds and and turns and twists, but it's never derailed. Now, some have said that Ecclesiastes is written by a guy who 
He's, he's lived through the backwardness, the brokenness of life, the perplexities of a thorn and thistle world, and he's sort of become jaded. He's become a, a hardened cynic, and he's thrown up his hands at the end of his life and just said, Kesara, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. But I think we need to reconsider that. This book fills the complex gaps that other books in the wisdom genre does not, walking us through these tricky situations. If you might consider Proverbs as something like undergraduate level wisdom, I think you could say that Ecclesiastes might be graduate level wisdom. Proverbs gives us the general patterns of life. Generally speaking, you do this, this will happen. It's similar in in school, as children, we learned, we learned the saying, I before E, except after C. I usually comes before E. However, there are exceptions, irregularities, situations that go rogue and seem to defy the rules. And life is like that under the sun. Ecclesiastes observes that. Times when I doesn't come before E, and there's no C in the mix. Situations, family, ministry, life. You work hard and things crash financially. Life seems to be right in your crosshairs and you pull the proverbial trigger and you don't hit the target. You don't even hit close to the target. The bullet goes behind you and you're left scratching your head. How did that happen? I did A, B, and C but things went the opposite direction. A friend commits apostasy despite shepherded and loved in a sound church. A close companion betrays you despite your loyalty. A godly man dies early, leaving his family while the wicked live long and seem to prosper. Why is this? These and more situations are what we might call the I don't knows the I don't knows of life, the I don't knows of ministry. I don't know ministry. Why do these storms befall us? Ecclesiastes recognizes these as the I don't knows. It's written to walk us through the I don't knows. Solomon is telling us in Ecclesiastes that life often isn't formulaic. It's backwards, it's broken. Life isn't about Put t- typing in the right code and voila, you get this, these comfy and easy and smooth, prosperous circumstances. It doesn't happen that way. Biz- biblical wisdom tells us that. Often we can suppose that if I just follow this biblical protocol, life will turn out how I want it. Ecclesiastes warns us, God is still in control, but it doesn't work out that way. There is no secret formula to cranking out the life I want. Some passages in Ecclesiastes are puzzling at times, but I think key, one key to staying on track and understanding the book is the thesis of the book in chapter 1, verse 2, which is also repeated at the close of the book in chapter 12, verse 8, where Solomon makes this famous statement, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Some of your translations might say meaningless, meaningless, or futility, life is futile, I don't think that's, that's the best translation. Life is not meaningless. Solomon writes to talk about life, how it has meaning. The Hebrew word has the idea of vapor or smoke or breath. On a cold morning, and this is about 11 months out of the year where I live, summer is about four weeks where I live in Jackson Hole. There are four seasons, winter, Kind of winter, summer with a chance of winter, and fall, but mostly winter. But on those cold mornings, when you breathe, you're, you, you see the vapor of your breath, but it's gone. It's a vapor. And that's the idea of Ecclesiastes. Life is vapor-like. What does that mean? Vapor is elusive. You can't control it. You can't lasso it. You can't shape it into the shape you want. And then it's gone. It's brief. Soberingly brief and at times frustratingly elusive. That's the idea of Ecclesiastes. You can't control vapor. 
It's gone. It's not formulaic. You can't make it take the ideal shape. And in it all, Ecclesiastes certainly has a high view of God affirming and implying that God is sovereign. This isn't just randomness. It's not always understandable. God is inscrutably sovereign. And God in these backwards broken situations, in his infinite wisdom, has not chosen to pop the hood of his sovereignty and, and, and our perplexity as we ask why and say, oh, well, this is how it works. And here's, all, here's how this, these complex and perplexing situations work together. He hasn't chosen to, done, to do that often. His his sovereignty is inscrutable, so we must fear and trust him. And so the big idea of our passage is that living well in a world that isn't requires a a surrendered trust in God. And for our outline, we're going to see three essential responses, three essential responses to life's vapor-like nature, three essential responses to life's vapor-like nature. Number one is this, embrace the discomfort of affliction. Number one, we're to embrace the discomfort of affliction. Verses one through six, Solomon is going is to tell us in the context of life under the sun, which is broken backwards, vapor-like, elusive, brief, he's going to say, we have to have faith that the discomfort of affliction is is more beneficial than the comfort of ease. Verse one, look there with me if you would, please. Solomon says, a good name is better than a good ointment. Again, in the context of life's battles, a good name, someone who strives for authentic godliness. This is essential in life's battles. The only way to get through it is trusting God, I want to stay true to God. By contrast, a good, a good ointment refers to a, the idea of a quick spray of perfume to kind of cover up or cologne to cover up body odor. Solomon, the idea here is that you can't spray godliness onto yourself. It's, it's cultivated through sanctification and, and suffering. Avoid spray on spirituality, theatrics, superficiality. Godliness is the answer in suffering when comfort isn't possible and isn't available at times, admitting I I can't do this, starts with putting our faith in Christ, of course, ditching the spray-on morality approach. And then he says, end of verse one, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. So Solomon brings us face-to-face with one of the greatest realities that tells us life is vapor-like, not able to control it, and brief, that is death. If there's anything that tells us you're not in control, it's that we cannot mark the day of our expiration on the calendar, the day which our culture tells us to not think about, to ignore. Why is that day, though, better than birth? Again, in in the context of a vapor-like nature of life, keeping our death in view helps us navigate the present and, and keep a right mindset. David Gibson writes in his excellent commentary, he says, quote, a coffin is a better preacher than a cot. When life ends or is about to end, absolutely everything comes into focus. And so to live life well now, we have to mark that end spot, death. A proper perspective helps us navigate the battles now. It's, it's been said that Ecclesiastes helps us live life backward. The idea that to live life well Now, you mark the end point on a map, death, and then you work backwards to where now is and then start living. Death is a a wonderful instructor if we'll listen. Every one of us will have a funeral. Ecclesiastes wants us to think about that. What will your funeral be like? Every one of us is going to have some sort of obituary. What do you want your obituary to say? Things like this help us calibrate, calibrate life. For those, of course, who've bowed the knee to Christ, the day of death is, it's gain, Philippians 1 says. 
Those who have refused the love of Christ, though, it'll be terrifying. So in life, there can be many things you can't control, like the day you die, but you can control preparing for it. Solomon continues, verse two, he says, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Feasting, celebration. It's not that celebrating is bad. Solomon isn't against that. Often in Ecclesiastes, he's, he's encouraging us to enjoy God's gift. But as far as gaining wisdom, it's not the best school. Sorrow is. You usually leave a funeral with greater wisdom than when you leave a birthday party. Because end of verse two, that's the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. He pauses, he thinks. Verse three, sorrow is better than laughter for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Affliction is better and more beneficial than comfort. And, and our culture is, is really just addicted to therapy. It's therapeutic central, self-worshipping, tragically man-centered. So much so that we can suppose that something that makes us feel bad is the worst thing for us. Even in Christian culture, this can happen. Sometimes it's the idea of, oh, you feel, you feel bad, you, 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 feel, you feel sad, quick, we don't want to feel that anymore. The Bible says, be joyful, the fruit of the Spirit is, is joy, do something superficial and, and put on a theologically misinformed, uh, smiling face and, 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 and pacify and numb yourself. Solomon says, pause, do not run too quickly from the school of sorrow. Jesus agrees when he said, Blessed are those who mourn in Matthew 5, 4. God is probably giving you a form of blessing. And if you're in such a season or someone else is, let's be careful about giving or receiving the superficial counsel that just says, oh, just do something happy. Just, just make this go away. Just numb yourself. Distract yourself. We do not. We do not want to disrupt a wonderful work of grace that God may be doing in a heart because biblical sorrow can create depth in a person. It can even enlarge your capacity for joy. And sorrow and strong faith can reside in the same person. The discomfort of affliction is more beneficial than the comfort of ease. A Bible sermon that stings is more valuable than a show that entertains. So we have to beware of an approach to spirituality, Christianity, that turns everything into you feeling great. It's like the child who isn't satisfied unless mom and dad put a huge ball of cotton candy on the plate. That's what's good for me. No. Sorrow is better than laughter. Again, Ecclesiastes is not against laughter. It's excellent. It's, it's something invented by God. It's good at times. But Psalm 119.67 says, before I, went, before I was afflicted, I went astray. When things were easy, I went astray, but now I keep your word. When a face is sad, a heart may be happy. This is the opposite of some of the things we hear. Happy has the idea in the original of, of a deep, settled, and a deep-seated joy, not superficial, distracted giddiness, peace in the soul. How could that, how could that happen, though? How, how could a, a heart have joy when the face is sad? It's not necessarily that details of affliction that you're going through are good, could be terrible, but God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. And the New Testament takes this. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10 teaches there's no contradiction to a peaceful, fulfilled heart and a sad face when he says he's sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Because that reflects right response to the sorrowful in life and the joy in life. It's like that time the 19th century missionary John G. Patton, he had sailed from Scotland to be a missionary and then what was called the New Hebrides, now the islands of Vanuatu in the South Pacific and the, the natives there were cannibals. And he was there, 
his, his wife had passed away, his, his young son had also passed away, both within a span of about a month or so. And that particular evening, the cannibals were chasing him with rifles and guns. And he climbs up a chestnut tree and, and hides as they were rioting and shooting all night. And he later wrote in his autobiography, he said, that was the best quiet time I ever had in that chestnut tree. It's the closest he ever felt to Christ and the perplexing of affliction. God is doing something because we're his children and he's a faithful father. He'll never be known as a deadbeat dad. You have to grow closer to him in these times. Where else are you going to go? Puritan Samuel Rutherford said this, quote, I have never heard anyone say the really deep lessons of life have come through times of ease and comfort. But I have heard strong saints say every significant advance I have ever made in grasping the depths of God's love and growing deep in him has come through suffering. Are you in a season of sorrow? Know that God the Father is parenting you. And just like a faithful parent does things in the lives of their children, their children don't understand immediately, but they do later, so it is with us. With a great God and a sovereign God who is holy and who is good and is loving. And know that the chief shepherd, Psalm 23, 4 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me. Verse 4, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. This isn't talking about good, righteous pleasure, but the idea of distraction, numbing the mind, refusing to look at things. And it's almost as if Solomon is, is looking at 21st century American culture and deliberately contradicting it to shepherd us with the fact that the discomfort of affliction is more beneficial than the comfort of ease. Verse five, it's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. It's so helpful because at times in the battles, we just want to hear something that's easy. Just tell me something positive here. And there are so many things positive to be sure. Our hope is in Christ. The song of fools though has the idea of, of flattery and nothing, nothing challenging Lighthearted, beware of gravitating towards that person who sings the song of fools. Solomon also wrote in Proverbs 27, 5, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And then verse six, for as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. And this too is futility. The picture here is of, of heating up a, a big pot of, of soup on an open fire. Firewood takes a while to light. It's slow. Sometimes we grow impatient, but you throw some thorn bushes under there and it's a big flashy show right away that dazzles the eyes. Fire and crackling right away, but then it's gone. There's no substance to it. An appearance of something, but no lasting help. So it is with bad advice and shallow worldly counsel, numbing myself with the song of fools, embracing affliction. Number two, number two is we consider responses to the vapor-like nature of life, quiet submission, quiet submission to life's frustrations, quiet submission to life's frustrations, verse 7 to 12. Here Solomon's going to tell us that we can be tempted as, as these backward things proceed in our life and we can't figure it out. We can be tempted to grow anger, angry, to fret, to be frustrated. We work hard and the opposite result we were hoping for results. We can be tempted to grow frustrated. We need a quiet submission, trusting in God. Look at verse 7. For oppression makes a wise man mad. Maybe the affliction faced here is some sort of oppression, some unjust situation. You work twice as hard as a coworker, and, and they're recognized and they get the raise. You raise your kids in the Lord and it seems like they're 
worse than the kids of an unbelieving family. You're the recipient of a crime, whatever it might be. It can be tempted to grow angry in these situations. Solomon's honest. He says, I know how it is. And then verse 7, and there, a bribe corrupts the heart. In affliction, there's temptation to compromise. This bribe that can corrupt the heart. Maybe a situation where quick escape from financial trouble that you found yourself in will result in breaking the law or or a, a family decision that is based on pragmatism and not faithful trusting in the unseen God. There can be these portals, these escape portals that seem to provide quick relief in suffering and Solomon is cautioning us from taking those. Beware, it'll corrupt you. Verse eight, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. It can be so tempting to grow impatient when things aren't working out. And you're thinking, I have done what the Lord has asked. And it's not working out at all. It's, go, it's getting worse. Impatience, it can sow seeds of compromise. You have to be so careful. The temptation is great. He says the end of the matter is better than the beginning. Better to endure, better to stand a bit. To trust God, look with eyes of faith on the situation, finish well. And notice here, it's a, I think it's a profound observation that patience is contrasted with haughtiness or pride. He's saying that impatient people can be proud people, sinfully proud people. Impatience can be a, come from a high view of ourselves, an overestimation of my importance, how I think things should work out. I deserve this, I did this, therefore this should work out my way. Instead of waiting and trusting and submitting to God, beware, this is pride. It's an inflated view of ourselves. And that high view of self can fuel this aggravation that doesn't fix the problem. Verse nine, continuing, he says, do not be eager in your heart to be angry for anger resides in the bosom of fools. That impatience can then decay into this anger. Anger at God, anger at people. But even so, 200 times out of 100, anger has not fixed the perplexities of life. James 1.19, he says this, you know, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Why? Ang- angry, anger can didn't feel good. It's, it's, like, it's that fleshly relief valve, but he says this, verse 20, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Anger is that response of frustration, also like impatience, that can be fueled by a high view of ourselves, demands. Bitterness can set in, cause us to dwell on things. Verse 10 to To go here, look at verse 10. He says, do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask about this. Isn't that the temptation often in affliction? Things are happening out of control. The knee-jerk can be to crave the good old days. I remember, why can't it just be how it was? And the good old days might have been better. Solomon is not saying the former days weren't better. They might have been. But it's futile to fixate and meditate on that. We have to deal with what's in front of us. It does no good to meditate on the good old days. By the grace of God, face the inscrutable sovereignty of God, parented by our heavenly Father that is before us. Consider also the past often seems better than current trials. There can be a danger where our memories, we become selective We looked at this in the men's conference. We were looking at Numbers 11, this escapist technique where we fight God's sovereignty by twisting the past. Israel did this in Numbers 11 where after God had redeemed them out of Egypt and and they're, they're wanting meat, they say, who will give us meat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt and the cucumbers, melons, leeks, and onions and and they did have cucumbers, leeks, and melons, but they had 
whip marks on their back and their baby boys were being thrown in the Nile by Pharaoh. Our memories can be selective in those moments where we're trying to escape God's providence in our lives, God's hard providence. Does nothing to help. And as the people of God, we look towards the future. We're not a people who have no hope. And then verse 11 to 12, there's some debate here about what he's saying, what this means. Look at verse 11, wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun for wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Again, different views here, what's, what's happening in this passage Probably the idea that in ancient times an inheritance was, was good, was essential for survival, to, to get land, food, some stability. And I think it's a simple recognition that earthly prosperity is a blessing, but only if accompanied by wisdom. Earthly prosperity isn't going isn't gonna to grant you eternal life and bail you out necessarily of the backwards nature of life much less gets you, gets you to heaven. So Solomon acknowledges that, that earthly prosperity is good, money's needed, but we need wisdom to navigate the vapor-like nature of life. Number three, the third response here, third response to the vapor-like nature of life, and this is really, this is sort of the crescendo of the passage here. Number three, surrendered trust to God's inscrutable sovereignty. Surrendered trust to God's inscrutable sovereignty. Verse 13 to 15. There's an inscrutable nature to the sovereignty of God. Again, we can't figure it all out at times. He allows things that don't fit the formula. Life is vapor-like, but we know And passages like Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven, on earth, and in the sea, in all deeps. So when hard times hit, things seem backwards, getting the opposite of what we've hoped for and prayed for. There's this crescendo where we have to demonstrate this this surrendered trust to God's inscrutable sovereignty. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God. So Solomon understands that God is sovereign. God is God and no one else is. Consider, it's a, it's a pause word. It's like selah in the Psalms. We're to reflect and remember he's sovereign. This isn't out of control. And then he continues in the thought, verse 13 for who is able to straighten what he has bent? This refers, of course, to the circumstances of life, which are just bent, crooked. Solomon acknowledges there are so many things in life that are crooked in every which way, and they are bent, and they are perverse. But consider that God is sovereign over that. Push pause. He reigns. He's in control. And the second thing he wants us to consider in the verse there, who is able to straighten what he's bent? You're not going to win an arm wrestling match with his majesty. Nor should we even try. You don't want to enter that contest. When you go hiking up in northwest Wyoming where I live in Jackson Hole, you often will come to these huge trees in the forest that'll have, they'll go up straight and they'll have this giant C in them. Then they'll go up straight again, this huge bend, this curve, stout lodgepole pines. It's a bizarre sight to see these beefy trees bent like that. There's no force great enough, from humanly speaking, to make that. You're scratching your head. How does that happen? Well, it snows a lot in Northwest Wyoming. One recent February, it snowed 15 feet, feet, not inches. We get, we average over 450 inches of snow in, an av- in a winter, and we like it. 
like it a lot. But when these lodgepoles are small and you have five, ten more feet of snow piling on them, they bend. And you notice the next summer they're crooked a little bit. And then another winter hits, ten more feet of snow, and, and they're crooked a little bit more and crooked a little bit more. And then they make that sea and then they go straight again. The force of God's snow accomplishes what no one else can. Nothing could. And we might imagine a four-year-old pushing on the bend in that tree. I'm going to straighten it. I'm going to straighten it. It's futile. But that's what it's like at times when God in his inscrutable sovereignty has bent a situation and has allowed it to be crooked. And we say, well, I want to force this. I want to bend it back. I need to, be, be make, I need to make it straight. We're fighting God. We're like a four-year-old trying to bend these huge 15-inch, 16-inch diameter lodgepoles. It's not going to happen. You're not going to unsovereign a sovereign God. Why has he bent it? We don't always know. He doesn't show us. And let's remember, God isn't always pleased with the things that he's allowed in the mystery of his sovereignty. We have his decorative sovereign will. We don't know everything. Again, he doesn't open the hood, but his revealed will, where where we know what pleases him. Why is that? We don't know. It's broke. It's bent. And so the text is saying to us, in effect, if it's not fixed, don't break it and don't fight it. We're not in a place to argue with God. You can't control life. It's a vapor. You can't lasso your breath. There are times when we want our, we want our paths to be easy and straight, and they are at times, and we praise God for that, predictable We want the straight path, though, the always flat, easy. We might need to stop wearying ourselves by trying to flatten and straighten the path. There are times also when I've been hiking in northwest Wyoming, and I might be on a new trail in the mountains, and it's winding, it's steep, it's crooked, it's exhausting, and and, I, and I've scoffed and said, well, why didn't the first guy who, make, who made this trail, why didn't he just take a nice, straightforward, easy path? And, and then you finally, you make it to the top and this breathtaking scenery that, that, that just is stunning. And you say, oh. And you look back and you realize a nice, smooth, straightforward, easy trail was impossible to get to this, to this breathtaking landmark. There was a massive cliff over there. There was uncrossable rivers there. Treacherous hazards over on this side. This was the only way. So it is in our battles with the Lord. Under the Lord's sovereignty, we can find ourselves thinking, Lord, this is the slowest, most tedious, painful way to go about this. What are you thinking? And maybe months or years later, or maybe not till heaven, we realize the crooked path was the only path and it was the best path. Job does not know about Job chapter 1 and 2. God is sovereign. And there are times in life we should not try to fix what he's broken. And we're not going to see how it works until later, maybe much later. But we will. We will because he's a good God. Good God and sovereign, sovereign and good. Continuing, Solomon says in verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be happy. Again, multiple verses in Ecclesiastes, like in Ecclesiastes 9, enjoy your wife, be glad. Put on oil, let your clothes be white, he says there. In other words, enjoy life. You're not more spiritual because you you have your, your taco bottom lip all the time. Enjoy God's gifts. God's given it to you. However, verse 14, but in the day of adversity, consider another Selah here. God has made the one as well as the other. This this verse explodes. That popular view of Christianity, which says, well, God didn't know this was going to happen to you. That is a pagan, idolatrous view of God. If God is not sovereign, he is not God. The sovereign means totally sovereign. 
but it does not mean he is pleased with evil and sin and things like that that happen to you. But he's sovereign over them nevertheless. He's made both the hard and the easy days. And then verse 14 concludes, why? Why, God? So that man will not discover anything that will be after him. In other words, it's the simple but profound and timeless theological principle, I'm not God. God is God and I'm not. I mean, sometimes it's just that is what we have to remember. And it's a good thing that I am not God and you're not God either. That would be a disaster. Matthew Henry writes on this, quote, consider it as the product of his eternal counsel, which is fulfilled in everything that befalls us. Consider that every work of God is wise, just, and good, and there is an admirable beauty and harmony in his works, and all will appear at last to have been for the best. Let us therefore give him the glory of all his works concerning us. I like to turn to the book of Revelation often, especially the scenes that are in heaven. And I like to see what people in heaven are saying because what the people in heaven are saying is what perfect people are saying. And it's how I should be thinking. And in places like Revelation 15, they're, they're looking upon so many hard things happening and they're saying, God, your ways are just. You are good. You're glorious. Who would not fear you? That's the response by the grace of God we're to have. And he concludes with really the the apex of life's vapor-like nature and perplexities. Look at verse 15. He says, I have seen everything. I've seen it all, Solomon says. During my lifetime of futility, that word is the same word translated vanity in 1-2, probably better, my lifetime of vanity. In other words, my vapor-like, fleeting, hard to control, brief life. I've seen it all, he says. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Nothing is harder than that. Echoing Asaph from Psalm 73. Why is this? This is classic Ecclesiastes here, by the way. No one is cracking a formula to type in and life unfolds in a sort of Goldilocks way. This is the great proof, verse 15, that life is not, you're not able to control it and God's sovereignty is inscrutable. How does this though, how does this idea, the righteous often die and the righteousness and the wicked prolong their life, how does that jive with what Solomon said in Proverbs 10, 27, where he writes, the fear of the Lord prolongs life and that the years of the wicked will be shortened. How does this, how does this work out? Did Solomon forget what he said? No. Remember, Proverbs is sort of general patterns of life. I before E, except after C. Ecclesiastes is this critical book for wisdom that fills in the gap. We are missing something huge in the canon. If we don't have this book, there are exceptions to life. It is vapor-like. We live in a backwards and a broken world. And after Genesis 3, we have to expect such perplexities, complexities, and affliction. Beloved, we are either entering into a backwards and a broken situation, currently in a backwards, broken situation, or coming out of a backwards and a broken situation, or some trifecta. It's just how life is, but it won't always be that way. And in it all, let us recall this God who is inscrutably sovereign, who we cannot interrogate, motivated by his mercy for sinners. We're not in a place to question him in view of our sin. Motivated by his mercy for sinners, he made a plan for his own adversity in order to accomplish the greatest possible prosperity. He looked down upon us 
and saw us on our sin before the creation of the world and made a plan to exercise his inscrutable sovereignty to bring his own son under the greatest adversity. And the Lord Jesus came out of heaven, the beauty and the perfection of the divine glory with the Father and the Spirit, and said, I will go down into the greatest adversity. And in a situation that seemed more bent than anything, the king died on a cross, the God-man being shamefully treated by his creation. And at the time, if you're looking at that and you don't have, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in your Bible or any other New Testament book, you're looking at this and you're thinking, God, this is the most backwards thing in the world. The king of Israel on a cross. And the Lord Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Talk about perplexity and suffering. And whatever, whatever it is that we face that is so backwards and broken, Christ suffered unspeakable adversity under the sovereign hand, predetermined plan of God, Acts 2.23, to pay the penalty for our sins and be held accountable for our sins and offenses against a holy God. So in the crooked paths, the bent circumstances, the adversity, recall the cross. Recall it, that he who did not spare his only son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And recall in your, your, your adversity, your backwards bent situation, the son of God who designed his own situation to accomplish the greatest prosperity as he died on the cross and rose from the grave. And by faith alone in Christ alone, we are saved, we're forgiven, we're reconciled to God and headed for an eternal life, the greatest prosperity for eternity than anyone could ever know. This is our inscrutably sovereign God. Father in heaven, we pause and, and confess that we don't, we, we don't understand so many things. We're not God. We're not infinite. Nor are we without sin. We're not in a place to shake our fist at you. Life is backwards and broken so often. We don't understand many things, Father, but we know that you are good. We know that your affliction is never wasted on us. We know that we must quietly, quietly bow, resist the temptation of anger and surrender with a sweet trust in response to your inscrutable sovereignty because we look at the cross and we see, oh, you designed this plan. Great adversity for the Son of God to bring about our great eternal prosperity by faith alone and him alone. May you arm us with faith, strengthen us as we go out into our vapor-like nature of life this week. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.